0: So anyway, here we go. Uh, remember, Ephesus is here on the coast of what would be modern-day Turkey. The Bible land's back over here, Jerusalem, all the, all the biblical areas. Uh, but we've been talking about Colossians. We've been talking about Philippians. So that's the area we're dealing with. If you think about the missionary journeys of Paul and where this Ephesian stuff occurred, Paul's first missionary journey was pretty limited geographically into this area of Galatia, which again is part of modern-day Turkey, but in the uh, eastern part of this area. Uh, that would have been, you would read about that probably Acts 13 and 14, maybe took a year or so. The second missionary journey, Paul would have started again from Antioch, traveled overland through Turkey, stopping at Derbe, Lystra, Antioch and Pisidia, different Antioch than this Antioch over in Syria, would have gone on over into Macedonia and Greece, would have come back and would have stopped briefly in Ephesus. So this would be the second missionary journey. This would have probably taken, what, about three years or so. Uh, He would have met Aquila and Priscilla and Corinth down here in Greece. They were fellow tent makers, he worked with them. He helped make a living making tents. They left with him and came back and stopped in Ephesus again briefly for Paul. But Paul uh, and Priscilla stayed in Ephesus. And then he went back uh, to Jerusalem on the back to Antioch. The third missionary journey again, he started in Antioch, went up through some of the same area he'd been through before on the previous two journeys, comes to Ephesus and is there probably about three years. He encounters some people. Uh, some of the first people he encounters are people that he says, uh, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we only know the baptism of John. He rebaptizes them to get the Holy Spirit. It talks about him going to the synagogues, preaching boldly. He runs into opposition. says he leaves the synagogue, goes next door to the uh, hall or church. The Tyrannus, is that right? Anybody remember? It's in my notes. Yeah, lecture hall of Tyrannus, and we'll show you some pictures in just a minute. And it uses an interesting phrase. He preaches and teaches from the from the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and it says all the people in Asia, which is this general area of Western Turkey. Hear the gospel. So if he lives there, he stays in Ephesus teaching, how do all of the people of Asia hear the gospel? He Communication. Letters, but what else? Okay. He's teaching for three years. Is it not logical to assume that maybe some of the people he taught are sent? How many of you have ever been or raised in West Alabama near Jasper? Anybody, anybody ever from Jasper? There was a preacher by the name of Gus Nichols who preached in Jasper, Alabama for more than 40 years or more. The entire West Alabama area and every little crossroads is a like Church of Christ started by somebody, either one of Gus Nichols' sons, or people that studied under Gus Nichols, his influence spread. So He had a radio influence. show every day. Pardon me? At a radio show. He had a radio every day. And occasionally, uh, Mr. Joe Franklin, who owned the Franklin uh, Buick Pontiac Cadillac dealership, had a fishing show <laughs> at 12, and, and Brother Nichols was at 1230, or something like that. I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> but I, kn- I knew Joe's, Mr. Franklin's son, Joe, Little Joe, or better known as Bucci, Mr. Franklin, if he didn't want to go do his fishing show, he'd call up Brother Nichols and say, you can have my 30 minutes today. (laughs) Even though Mr. Franklin was a Methodist, he didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) But, But anyway, Paul's influence. Okay. And as he, after three years, leaves Ephesus, goes over to some of the same areas he's been before, he then comes back, looping down through the coastline, He doesn't come back to Ephesus but stops at Miletus and there calls the elders of Ephesus to come meeting and gives them a last charge. That beautiful passage in Acts 20 where he says to the the elders, feed the flock, watch out, and tells them, you're not gonna see me anymore. Goes back and eventually is taken off to prison. Aren't you excited about this? Come on. All right, so Ephesus, Ephesians. Two main questions. Who wrote it? Well, of course, Paul wrote it, right? What do the pointy heads say, you What do the theologians say? You know, he's getting ready. Next week, I've got to do all of this myself because he's going to the convention of pointy heads. The Society of Biblical, Biblical Literature in San Francisco. It's in Boston. Boston, that's in Boston. Boston. They choose exciting places. <laughs> <laughs> so what do the theologians say about God? they're divided? They're divided. And what are some of the reasons, George, why they... Like, stylistically, it differs from what are considered the true Pauline. Okay, so some of the style issues, chapter 1 says it's Paul, but vocabulary, lack of personal reference. In the vocabulary, uh, they say that there's some 70 Greek words that are in Ephesians that appear nowhere else? Have you ever used different words in different settings like Barry, if you give a talk to a bunch of talents, you can use a certain language. But if you come in here with a bunch of laymen, we've got to dumb it down, don't we? <laughs> 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 All right.
1: All right. Word. So... <laughs> <laughs>
0: 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, I came to you not in fancy words. He says, I chose to use a very plain language to you so that it wouldn't be me that you were attracted to, it would have been the gospel. And yet, Ephesus, Ephesians, deals with more loftier subjects. It's a, it's a much richer theological book. It's not dealing with specific issues, is it? It's about basic theology. So, I along with others, (laughs) am willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. And was it really written to the Ephesians? As I just said, it's not written into uh, in response to some specific problems like Colossians, where Paul's really trying to say to them the all-sufficiency of Christ. It's not uh, apparently not in response <clears throat> to specific issues. Several of the earliest manuscripts don't say in that verse one or two, whatever it is, Ephesus. That, that word's missing in the early manuscripts. Some think it might be that missing letter to Laodicea. Colossians 4 talks about. Colossians said, also read the letter I wrote to Laodicea. When we don't know where that letter is. Maybe it's this letter. Maybe it's the Ephesian Uh Titius is the, is the same person carrying the Colossian letter. He's carrying this letter, so this indeed may be uh, the missing letter to Laodicea. The style of the, of, the, of, the, of the letter is more like a sermon or a poem, and per, of course prayer plays a important role in it. But what N.T. Wright says is this. He says, if we suppose that Paul intended the letter to go to several young churches within a hundred miles or so of Ephesus, we won't go very wrong. What difference does it make if it's to Ephesus or lay of? Probably not a lot. Okay, uh, I know it's a little bright. You may not be able to see this. Sally and I had the pleasure of visiting Ephesus a few years ago. If you can picture a very hilly place, down way down here is flat. You're looking down the hill, down this main street that they have excavated over the, over the last many years. Remember, this area of Turkey is uh, very subject to earthquakes. It's been subject to conquering by various armies over the years and so Ephesus disappeared and this is portions that they've excavated so you're the way they did is you know us being very elderly looking people they bust us up to the top of the hill and we walked back down this hill and eventually met up with the bus down in the parking lot so it wouldn't tax us too much you know they didn't want to have a staff cardiologist on call Uh, another picture. Here's a very elaborate facade of a building they've excavated. I don't know what this was. Somewhere along in here is where they had the public toilet. They had a row of toilets in this room. They were made out of marble or granite or, or something. And supposedly those who were, could afford it in the wintertime would pay their slaves to go in and warm it up for them <laughs> by sitting on that cold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, how would you want to sit down on a cold stone? Uh, don't, another, don't try that. At that was a visual I didn't need. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, just a rocks. Look. This very elaborate building is the they call it the Library of uh, Celsus, I believe they call it. That facade has been reconstructed. And you can see, too, in an area with an earthquake why that would crumble, right? And then the last, this is hard to see, but you're standing flat. This is a very curved coliseum and rows of seats, you could play a football game in there if you had a little bit more room, but standing down at, at, at the ground level with these seats on a curved basis, the acoustics are perfect. And so you, an orator can make a speech be heard by everybody there without amplification. Alright, so. How are we doing on time? We've got five minutes to cover the <laughs> Review Paul's an apostle through the will of God and again Paul's uh, road to Damascus experience it truly was a call directly from Jesus. Grace and peace. Grace, a free gift, not something we earn. You know we Oftentimes we read these openings and you see grace and peace and you just kind of gloss over it because it's familiar, but the concept of free gift is not something that we gloss over. Shalom, peace, not just the absence of conflict, but the deeper meaning, everything that makes for a person's well-being, you wish somebody shalom, it's not just not getting arrested or beaten inner inner feeling as well and I think Josh did a great job from what I hear talking about predestination God chose us but he chose us corporately all those who will believe who will accept Jesus were predestined to be saved and then verses 9 through 14 God's secret plan was that it was for everybody not just to the Jews but to everybody to reunite all of mankind as you think about what Josh has been preaching on the last few weeks about forgiveness <laughs> versus reconciliation, that oftentimes we as human beings can forgive somebody, but we can't achieve reconciliation. Marriage, where you have two people that the relationship is so so damaged that you just can't get it back together. It's like trying to get toothpaste back in the tube. You can't do it. But, when Jesus, uh, Jesus forgives, and God forgives. It is reconciliation that occurs. He brings us back close to Him, as we'll study today. Hebrews 10 talks about the concept that because of Jesus' sacrifice, sins are remembered no more. You know, we forgive, we still have the nagging, the nagging memory of that traumatic event that occurred that made that separation occur. And it's just impossible as humans sometimes to put that out of our mind and truly be reconciled. And then, uh, so God's plan is to reunite all of mankind. The down payment, of the earnest money, was the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise that He is going to do it. Part of our, you know, we're, we're now we are saved, but not yet. We'll talk about that in a moment. More in a moment. And then Paul's eloquent prayer in the last part. Let's, okay, let's quickly look at chapter 2. Once you were dead, doomed forever because of your many sins, you used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit at work in parts of all those who refuse to obey God. We forget that sin is the problem. Sin kills innocence. Wouldn't it be nice not to know about some of the awful things we know about, some of the awful things we read about, some of the awful things we have experienced. Anybody who's ever been in the military and they've seen up close and personal the conflict that happens on the battlefield because man can't live together. They don't want to see that again. Addictions, greed, Those of us who are business people or just ordinary people that are not in the business world. We want something so bad that it becomes ruling in our lives, sexual addiction, opioids, whatever, as Randy so eloquently talked about this morning about their son Christopher. Uh, We are under God's anger. He talks about we're under God's anger because of sin, separation took place in Genesis And it's the process of working back toward reconciliation that the rest of the Bible has been uh, brought to us for. Uh, Paul says, all of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature, our our sinful nature. We're prone to getting into temptation. But, verses 4 through 10, but, that's a big word, but, But God is so rich in mercy, so rich in mercy. Uh, We used to live in sin. We were under God's anger. Because we were under God's anger, we need a way to be reconciled. That's the need. And here, Paul says, here's here's the good news. Uh, God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so very much that even while we were dead, because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's special favor that you can say. And here's an interesting verse. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ. The vision of Romans chapter 6 and 3. We come up out of baptism. We've been figuratively buried with Jesus. We've been raised. And we are, and we are as though it is right now, we are, not we will be, but it says we are seated with him in the heavenly realms, all because we are one with Christ Jesus. Randall, Talk about that a little bit. We are now. How can that be? Says, you, know, you have to say, you know, say okay. it says we are, he's raised us up with Jesus and he has seated us with Jesus as the right hand of God. He says we are seated with him. That's one of those uh, $10 questions, I just know that Psalms is one t- that's, that's a reference to Psalm 110, and that's a very, very often scripture. It's just an incredibly important picture. And the fact that we share that inheritance, that's, that's a gift, basically. And this is one of the deep theological things. If you want to read a theological concept and think about it deeply, here's what I'm it Here's a promise we as Christians. It's one of those now and not yet, but you know, it, it's this is a picture of us sitting with Jesus at the right hand of God in a place of honor. What a promise! And He says it's, it's reality now, if we have enough faith to deal with I think of, uh, I, can't say the name of the yet. I can't think of the sinnership. I can't think of the who had no no place at. At, at David's table. So he but he brought him in? But he brought him in, and he said, "Hey, there will not be a day that you won't be sitting at my table. And he was like, all by And it was because of the relationship with David with his father, right? Exactly. And so here's the picture. Here's the reality now. Jesus, God's doing, because of what Jesus did, he's allowing all of us, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, to come in and, and occupy that that place. So wonderful picture. He loved us even when we were dead in our sins. Life came when Jesus was raised from the dead. We are one with Christ Jesus, all hugely uh, deep pictures. And then God can point to us as examples in the future. how He's loved all of us. We're saved by grace, a gift from God. Can't claim it <coughs> on our effort. We are God's message. And this, these verses, <coughs> verses 8 through 10, I'll cover that real quickly and then uh, Josh. will have five minutes to do this. God saved you by his special favor when you believe and you can't take credit. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so none of us can boast about it. But then verse 10 For we are God's masterpiece. That's a tremendous picture a vision of what you think about a huge uh, Mona Lisa, one of the great paintings of the, uh, the, the picture in uh, the museum in Florence of, uh, of the uh, sculpture, sculpture of David that uh, has done anything beautiful. It says we are his masterpiece. He's created us you. Artistically, he's created something out of nothing. We're sinful people so that we can do the good things he's planned for. Works didn't save us. But we're created so we can do good works. And this week, I read N.T. Wright Remember that we're dealing with a we're dealing with a Church of England guy, so But very smart. A <laughs> pointy. Point Paul speaks in Romans, Galatians, and Philippians of being justified by faith. Here in verse 8, he speaks of being saved by grace. Justification and salvation are not the same thing. Justification has to do with people belonging to God's family. It answers, justification answers the question as to how they are marked out or presented as members of it. Salvation has to do with people being rescued from the fate they would otherwise have incurred. It answers the question as to how that rescue is taking place, and who is ultimately responsible for it. When Paul speaks of justification, the thing which marks out, which marks people out, is their faith. When he speaks of salvation, that responsibility is God. this make any sense to think about. You know, as we think about why we do good things, it's to demonstrate, it's to help identify to the world who we are. If we take a cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus Christ, that's marking us out as followers or disciples of Jesus. It marks us as who we are. We're not trying to earn any salvation. If you're not careful, you can say, well, that's Baptist doctrine. That's why we're baptized. We're, We're marking ourselves out. Well, think about it a little bit. Are you baptized to save yourself? Did Abraham agree to be circumcised to save himself? I would say he was already saved. Now, had he not done it, would he still been saved? That's the point. Justification and salvation—again, deep concepts that we can all think about. Josh,
1: do you mind turning that off when it gets? Uh, usually, I don't like being recorded. But knowing that uh, there's a recording of Hilton uh, referencing not only a fishing show, but a cold marble toilet, uh, <laughs> it's just kind of made my morning. So for those of you who missed that, uh, you know, that's why you got to get here on time. Um, but what, you, what you showed at the beginning about Paul's missionary journey, thats I, I could never keep that stuff in my mind. and It just reminds me of the, the great sacrifice he made, and it, it, it puts some some realness to his writing of this. Uh, That's so appreciated. Um, In Ephesians uh, 2, what Hilton just covered, um, as he talks about the already-not-yet sense of salvation, that Paul can talk about salvation in past, present, and future tense. It's something that that Jesus has accomplished, past tense, that we even experience to some degree now. We are seated, we are raised uh, with Christ, and in future tense, we will be uh, made whole. Uh, so you have these kind of three dimensions to salvation that we're, we're kind of in this limbo in, in this, yes, it's happened, we begin to experience it, not all the way yet. I think we see something similar uh, in the language uh, where Paul talks about being dead in our sins, uh, that sometimes we think of the deadness in our sins as just some sort of future reality, punishment to come. Uh, but the way we get it um, described in the New Testament, the, is there's, a, there's also a kind of present tense Um, brokenness that we experience now in our sins. So Paul talks about being dead in our sins even now uh, because when we live against the grain of how God made us to live, uh, we experience some of the consequences of sin in real time, Uh, the kind of distortedness that uh, that that brings. Uh, Paul also talks about sin with uh, holistic language. It's our minds, the way of thinking is distorted by our sins, our desires, our hearts are distorted by sins, even our bodies to some degree, so that uh, as we think about what Christ does for us now and in the future, we also are reminded of how sin hurts us now in multiple ways uh, and not only in future reality, uh, so that we can see both uh, the depths of sin and the riches of God's saving grace in us. So that we are reminded that sin is not those things that I really wish I could do if God would let me get away with it. Uh, But rather we see sin as that which promises so much, but it only takes and takes and takes. Uh, And God, although he might have a a particular yoke to put upon us, it's light and it's easy and it's life-giving. So, it might be uh, the only real thing that I add to those first ten verses. Uh, It's beautiful, though. Those first ten verses capture so much and such a, uh, such a small segment. When we get into verse 11 then, um, after Paul has laid out something like the basics of Christian theology, um, Paul says, therefore remember, and it sounds like he's speaking to a largely non-Jewish audience, a Gentile audience, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Uh, It's interesting that he talks about um, those who are called to circumcision and the circumcision made by hands. You almost see scare quotes. The language made by hands is typically associated with idolatry. So it's almost like he's saying, these people who, they yes, they've undergone the ritual of circumcision, but in a sense, they don't really experience the circumcision of the heart. They've almost turned circumcision into its own idolatry. They've taken that which is good and made an idol out of it. And I think, that'll preach, right? Uh, we do that in church. That's not just something that Jewish people did back then. We take something that's made for good, maybe a sign of, of faith like baptism, and we can turn it into an idol. We've done this, therefore that's all that matters. Or in our um, kind of Christian culture, uh, the, the trend right now towards making tolerance uh, the main virtue. Tolerance is good, but when you make tolerance the main virtue, it becomes an idol and starts becoming more corrupting uh, than helpful. So make keeping the good in its proper place and not allowing it to move to a place of idolatry is very important, uh, as we see Paul even referencing how that happened with something good like circumcision. But what he calls them to remember is their former alienation as Gentiles, uh, alienated from the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Um, as I was as I was reading about this and trying to take this seriously, uh, one of the commentators said, uh, "For us who are Gentile Christians, which is probably most of us here in a Middle Tennessee church uh, who don't have Jewish backgrounds, we Paul is inviting us to remember where we would be without Christ. It's as though um, considering." Um, one of the best ways to get at who Christ is is to think where we would be without him. And, it, and as I try to lay you know, in bed tonight doing my best, often failingly, to put my phone down or something like that and lay in bed and just think, where would I be? You, you can't help but think, oh, thank God. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for what he has done. Uh, that I am not without hope and apart from God in the world. Interestingly, the word atheist is in here. Without God is etheoi uh, in Greek. And he connects without God to without hope. And as I referenced that um, atheist philosopher uh, last week, um, Rosenberg, uh, he basically confirms this. No God, no hope for any sort of full restoration, and you just deal with that. Um, And I think, yeah, you're right, no God, no ultimate hope, but that's not where we are as Christians. We have God and we have hope remember this. And he said, then you were excluded from citizenship. And he's going to pick up on this language again in verse 19, where he's, I think it's verse 19. Uh, He's going to say, but now, now you are no longer foreigners. You are citizens and all the rights that come with that. Uh, Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, Hilton rightly highlighted that language, but God in chapter 2, 1 through 10. This is where you were, but God stepped in and made this dramatic change in your reality. Um, But God, who is rich in mercy, we sometimes have this distorted idea that God is rich in wrath or something like that. He is abounding in anger or something, but the language in in Paul is, no, God is by nature rich in mercy, and so he deals with uh, the wrath that we might experience. He steps in and takes upon himself by giving us his son. This is who our God is, Uh, and it's, it's, it's inspiring. Uh, And here we have, so, but God, in verses 1 through 10, it's now, but now in Christ. This is a game changer. But now in Christ, we who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Um, So here's what he's calling them to kind of remember. You are apart from Israel and what God was doing in them as Gentiles. Uh, which meant to some degree you were apart from God. But now, but God, uh, things have changed. Uh, You were formerly, in a sense, dead. You were not citizens. You had no hope. You weren't part of the covenant. But now, and he uses both the language in verse 13 and I think in verse 16, by the blood of Christ or by the cross of Christ, in some mysterious way uh, that, that we can't even begin to capture, but there are rich metaphors in Scripture. Somehow the sacrifice of Christ brings healing, takes us from being apart from Israel, apart from God, and not citizens, and no hope, and not part of the covenant, uh, and a massive change has happened, and so what he's going to lean into in this is the peace that's brought, and particularly in Ephesians, uh, when he talks about peace, um, he moves from this idea of inner peace, that's not his focus here, although that's part of being, uh, having hope and being part of God, but here he looks at that shalom, as Hilton was talking about, as this richness And the two angles he takes, instead of focusing inward, is how we have peace with God and peace with one another. He's going to hone in on, yet Jews and Gentiles had a division. But now, but by Christ, uh, there is reconciliation, there is peace. The two are made one. And this two into oneness brings access to God, new citizenship. And the language that he's destroyed the dividing wall, Um, this can be a generic (coughs) reference to just a source of division. But he also might be picking up on this idea uh, that in the temple courtyard uh, there was a four-foot-high barrier uh, where the Gentiles were supposed to stay outside of, uh, those Gentiles who were kind of friendly to Judaism. Uh, So this four-foot-high barrier with signs saying, you know, on penalty of death, you trespass. Uh, And so you can even get the sense that that wall is torn down by Christ. Um, I think uh, the uh, commentaries I read and what I know of Paul I think that what he's saying is that he has destroyed what has divided them. I don't believe he's saying he has destroyed the law in and of itself. Uh, Because we get back in Romans, for instance, Paul says he didn't destroy, uh, he didn't abolish, same exact language, he fulfills the law. By fulfilling the law, uh, he destroys the enmity, the barrier. So, uh, for instance, we can look at verse 16 where he clarifies this and one body to reconcile both of them to God through Christ, by which he put to death their hostility. This is what he puts to death. He destroys the hostility. Um, from Romans, if you were in the class uh, of Romans, uh, we saw how the law was good, and this good thing was distorted. Uh, and so I think uh, Paul is working with a similar idea there. The law isn't bad in of itself. It's a good thing that has been distorted. And part of that distortion has come Uh, where the law, rather than being a means for uh, the people of Israel to be a light to the nations that draws them in, it has become, instead of a light to the nations that draws them in, it's become a dividing wall that keeps them out. And so what Jesus has done by fulfilling the law is destroying that barrier. So God didn't create a bad law uh, to just kind of mess with people that he could eventually destroy. He created a good law that was corrupted. But Jesus comes and fulfills it, and through his blood he breaks that barrier down. Uh, and so, uh, the two are made one, verse um, 16, we can, we can get there since I only have about two more minutes, and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one God. Um There is um, Isaiah, language from Isaiah um, seems to be echoed here. It's great prophet Isaiah who's looking forward to a time of reconciliation and restoration, uh, where you have the Prince of Peace who's going to set things right. Or you have a peace reference where uh, as as God brings peace in Israel, the Gentiles are going to look and see it and start streaming toward it. And this is what we get here. Um, And I think that is being picked up as well in contrast to the Pax Romana. The propaganda about the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome that doesn't come by the sacrifice of the blood of Christ, but it comes through sacrificing others who get in your way. It is uh, the peace that comes uh, through a kind of um, um, top-down, forced, um, rather than the peace of Christ, which comes through uh, sacrificial love. So there is this change, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Uh, so what was the case back here, you are not citizens, um, is, is um, reverse. You are now citizens. And then Paul mixes some metaphors uh, with citizen language and housing language. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the <coughs> cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So these people who were outside, who were foreigners, who had the dividing wall between them and the temple, now themselves become part of the temple. It's this beautiful picture. Uh, Those uh, who uh, were excluded are now not only brought in, but they become part of that building itself. Just as Israel was in slavery, if you know their story, they were in slavery, God calls them out and he calls them a royal priesthood, uh, which doesn't mean they're all priests, but it means they're all going to represent God. So now the people who were once foreigners have been brought in, and they're not just brought into some sort of vague peace, but the kind of peace that then uh, empowers them to be God's representatives in the world, what Hilton was getting at, to be God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Um, This is a a beautiful picture, and what we get here is he brings the two. One is not, he brings two different people into one kind of blended, you know, new um, ethnicity, but it seems as though they both they, they retain their distinctions. They're still Jew. They're still Gentile. But part of the beauty of Christ is he brings peace in the midst of these differences, not by eradicating the differences, uh, but by eradicating the enmity that, that, that prevents them from appreciating those differences. Uh, so a really powerful picture of the peace of Christ um, that it's easy to take for granted today as Gentiles, uh, but we are reminded about what, uh, what Christ has accomplished. Closing thoughts, Hilton?
0: Well, I, I just hope uh, you will uh, lead along with us and just, kind of, again, this is a deep theological book. It was not written for specific problems. It was to help these people, again, who had been separated from God for so long, not even knowing about God in m- most cases, uh, to be introduced to these concepts and think about them. Next week, Josh, as I said, and we, we wish you have a good trip. And hope you guys... <laughs> with the point he-